Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vikalskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. And I'm joined by Riley Sager, who is out with his brand new novel, The Only One Left. It is available everywhere. Riley's a New York Times bestselling author. Most recently, we had him on to discuss The House Across the Lake, which is... I think being developed for Netflix. So, but Riley, this book, I have to tell you, I got it in the mail the day before we sat down for this interview, and I thought, gosh, I hope I can get some of this read. Well, it took up my night because I, about three hours later, I was, I, I was wide-eyed and had finished reading the book and just couldn't believe the fast pace of this book. It was a fantastic book. So jumping right into it, you have a, a story set up in the style of the whole Lizzie Borden situation, the, the, the poem and all that. So can you kind of just set this up? Because I, I, I don't really want to give away anything. There's just so many secrets and twists and turns. Yeah, it's, it's very, very loosely inspired by Lizzie Borden. And it, it's about a woman named Lenora Hope who, when she was 17, her entire family was killed, and everyone thinks that she did it. And she, you know, there was no proof. She sort of hid away in her giant, family's giant Gilded Aid mansion on the edge of a cliff. And now it's 54 years later. She's very old. She's in poor health. And a home health aide comes in, a live-in nurse, to care for her named Kit. And Lenora can't speak. She can't walk. All she can do is use her left hand, which is enough to use a typewriter, which is how she sometimes communicates. And so for her new nurse kit, she types one night, I want to tell you everything. And so it's Kit helping Lenora type up the story of the night her entire family was murdered. And there's a lot to the story, and it's very twisty. You know, the the ages that you deal with here, the Gilded Age, the late 19th century, and then the early 80s, I, I understand the part about the Gilded Age because it just makes the mansion so much cooler than that. And so you had to go back and read about that. You lived through the 80s, and so I know you've done this in previous books where they've been set in certain time periods. Why did you pick the 80s for this particular uh, present-day time period of the book? Yeah, the book takes place in 1983, and I picked that time because... This is one of those books that if Google existed, it would be maybe five pages long, and my publisher really wanted something longer than that, so I had to give something something to just get away from all the modern technology that we have that makes it so easy to find out anything about anyone. And also, I like 1983 because it's close enough that a lot of us remember it, but also distant enough that it feels like a whole other world. And I liked that sense of kind of being out of time a little bit. Like, it takes place in this Gilded Age mansion that, for all intents and purposes, is the same as it was in 1929 when the massacre occurred. And I wanted it to feel like this place where time doesn't quite exist. The idea that the book, the story could be told in part, and, and you do flip between the, the timelines in what the patient, Lenora Hope, is writing and what Kit McDear is actually observing and asking questions, but I would think that that would be a pacing nightmare for a writer, because to sit there and think about what somebody is typing, a lot of this is conversations between the two of them, so how did you attack the pacing problem, because this book paced so well? Oh, thank you. It was... It was hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Because um, one, and when I came up with the idea, I'm like, oh, this is great. But I have one of the main characters can't speak and can't 
walk and can move. And so how do you make this person compelling? And also, I wanted Lenore to feel dangerous. Even though she's incapable of doing harm right now, I wanted her to still feel like, ooh, she's, she's sinister a little bit. And so the best way I thought of doing this is I was going to have narration by her as well. And then I thought, no, it's more fun, I think, to just type it. <laughs> and so all these, these chapters of, like, typewritten, like, literally like a typewriter font of, of Benora typing out her response and, you know, her story. And it was, it was kind of a pacing nightmare. <laughs> um, when you're structuring a book, you have no idea if it's all going to work until someone else reads it. And in this case, I did not think it was working at all. And I was so nervous about it that I sent the first 150 pages to my editor and my agent with an email going, help, I don't know what I'm doing here. And they both read it and said, um, it's fantastic, just keep doing what you're doing. And so that's when I realized, okay, this is working. The, the other thing, there, there's a staff that's part of the house, and this, Lenore Hope's a woman of some means. She comes from a, from a family of means. There's staff in the house, and I thought there was an interesting little tidbit in there about the the person who kind of runs the whole household, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think her name was Mrs. Baker. And Mrs. Baker, yes. Okay. Uh, the, no, no, Mrs., yes, because the ha- housekeeper takes on the name Mrs. Mrs., that's what I was going to get at, is there, there was that little tidbit in there about the housekeeper taking on the name Mrs. Is that a, a true thing from that age? Because the only other one that I could think of from that era would have been Mrs. Pugh in the Annie musical, and they always referred to her as Mrs., and I thought that was kind of strange. No, that that is the. It was the same in Downton Abbey. The head housekeeper was Mrs. Hughes, even though she was unmarried for a time. And it 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 sort of symbolized. Like I'm not quite sure why or how it started, but it is the head housekeeper takes the name Mrs. Almost as if they're married to the house. Kind of. It's it's a very weird thing. But yeah, it was a it was a thing back then. So you have the, these characters and these, these staff members that are all working around the house, and the house itself takes on a personality of its own in the book, and, and you talked about how it kind of appears the same way. So as you imagine this house, did you, uh, have, you, have you been in Gilded Age Ransoms before? Because the way you've constructed this, I can almost picture it in my mind, but it's probably not how you picture it in your mind. Probably not, and I, I haven't, have I been in Gilded Age? I'm sure I have been on some like historical tour somewhere. Um, but I just really liked the idea of having this mansion perched on a cliff and it's tilting toward the sea because of the erosion of the cliff. And I thought it would be a very cool way to express Kit's feeling about being in this mansion and feeling just unbalanced by it all. And so I literally made it unbalanced where the floors are tilted and things are leaning and the house is just crumbling. And it was really fun to create this place and to just have like little bits of spookiness and bits of date because the house is crumbling. Like pieces of it are falling off like at regular intervals. And I was thinking like House of Usher. Okay. This is very much a gothic novel, and there are tropes in the gothic novel. Like, there are, like, the sinister housekeeper and the sexy groundskeeper and 
this windswept cliff. And so I wanted to really lean into the tropes and just have a lot of fun with it. I'm chatting with Riley Sager about his brand new novel, The Only One Left. It is available everywhere. It's a fantastic thriller. And if you haven't read any of Riley's previous books, go back and read them. It's not a series, but they are all fantastic thrillers. Riley, something else about this book that stood out to me is the the conversations that and the secrets that so many people keep. And as you drop the little hints and the secrets as it as it plots out, as the story plots out, did you go to great pains to, to make sure that those secrets didn't get dropped too early? Because some of these books with dual narration, the, the reader knows more than the characters in the book as the story progresses. But I didn't get that sense in this book. Yeah, it's always an interesting mental game I play with the reader where there are some times when I want them to think that they are ahead of the curve and then pull the rug out from under them. And then sometimes I just want to straight up surprise them. And so I'm constantly thinking, what is the reader thinking right now? Because I need to know that or predict that for this to work. And it is a bit of a guessing game until other people read it. Because the hard part about writing a book with lots of twists is that I know the twists. And so when I'm writing them, it feels like I'm telegraphing everything so obviously and that there will be no surprises in the book. And so it isn't until like you get to the finished product and then you're like, oh, yeah, I, I think this works. Part of the, so it, is, it is just mind games. It's fun. <laughs> well, part of the drumbeat of the book was the poem. And I think a lot of us, are, our only knowledge of the Lizzie Borden case is the Lizzie Borden took an axe poem. There's a similar poem about Lenora Hope that you constructed for this book. And I'd like to know what type of, or when in the writing process that poem came to be. Because I thought it was cute how it was put together. And it's a little tip of the hat to Lizzie Borden. But th where did you come up with the actual final version of that poem? Because there are little tricks to it. Well, like you, like, that's really all I knew about Lizzie Borden. And so when I was going to, I'm going to write a book inspired by Lizzie Borden, that's all I really knew, and that's all I really needed to know. And so I knew Lenora needed to have her own creepy rhyme about her, and it was literally the first thing I wrote. Did Lenora's or name... Even, did Lenora, did Lenora's that's how I picked Lenora's name. Okay, okay. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that was the poetic, that, that's why the name came to be what it was, right? Yeah, I needed something to rhyme with rope. Yeah, because she it's, it's, it's that 17 Lenora Hope hung her sister with a rope. And so I, I knew I was going to write about this woman accused of killing her family and all that stuff, but before plotting really any of it out, I knew I needed that rhyme. And so I sat down one day and spent pretty much all afternoon just compiling this schoolyard chant that people say about Lenora. You've written several... Uh, novels, some under your own name, some under Riley Sager, and so I'm always interested when authors do this, do you take on a different writing personality under these different names? I mean, is there a distinct Riley Sager writing style that doesn't, that doesn't track with the other books that you write under different names? Um, yeah, I think so. Like, it's, it's hard to, because now I just only write as Riley Sager. And so I'm, I'm now firmly in that sort of voice and mode. But yeah, I, I think so. Like, it's, I think of it a little bit as, it, it sounds a little weird in method acting, but when I'm writing, I do hear the character's voice in my head. And it is not my voice. And so I'm not saying that they're 
coming up with the words, but when I'm coming up with the words, I hear them through, filtered through, like, a voice that's not my own. And I know it sounds very strange. Well, it almost seems to me like an Andy Kaufman, Tony Clifton type situation. Is that a fair comparison? Kind of, yeah, because I get asked about the pen name a lot, and they're like, well, how much is you, and how much is Riley? And I feel like Riley is 100% me, but I am not 100% Riley, if that makes sense. Yeah, follow. The, the, the book's set in Maine, and I know you're a New England guy. You live in New Jersey area right now, but uh, the I thought the Maine coast was a great place to set this. Did you consider any other place for this book other than Maine? No, I'm just... Geographically, it's one of the few places in America that has these cliffs that like hang over the sea, and I knew that was a big important part of the book. And then I decided to take advantage of like, you know, Maine's reputation for spooky things and these windswept vistas and the waves crashing against these rocks and cliffs. And so it, it turned out to be a really great place to, to set the book. And also, Maine does have like this history of like, you know, these Gilded Age enclaves that exist. Uh, House Across the Lake being developed for Netflix, is that a deal that you're involved with, or do they just write you a check, shake hands, and take your work and go? They write a check, shake hands, take my work and go. And, uh, like, right now with the writer's strike going on, there's no work being done at all. So we'll see if it happens. <laughs> I mean, I'm, who knows how long this strike is going to last, but pretty much... Most things in Hollywood that in development are just on pause right now, and who knows if they'll be picked up once the strike is over. I hope so. Fingers crossed, because I'd love to see a movie version of this. All right. Well, the only one left is the brand-new novel by Riley Sager. It's available everywhere. It's a fantastically uh, well-plotted book, and it entertained me for about three hours last night. Riley, I love this book, and I thank you for joining me to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. She walks these hills in a long black